our original plan was to go to the original meeting when it was down the path. So we got a petition to have a separate meeting. And here we are. This is a separate meeting. This is a meeting that's open so people that have not complained can voice their complaints.
to show from my part an open rebuke to the Lord. In Matthew 18, there are instructions for if you have a problem with a brother, you go and talk to him privately first. And then if you just you take one or two witnesses, and if he doesn't listen to you, then you go publicly. Apparently, this congregation doesn't read what it says in the Bible about church discipline. That is church discipline. And it is an unconscionable thing to bring up accusations against a person, another Christian, and disinvite him to the meeting. To not have him there. If he wasn't, if, if by some chance you neglected to invite him, and the meeting occurred, you should have immediately stopped the meeting and said, we won't have this meeting until Steve is here. You know, when you do things as Christian people, you have an obligation to do them decently. First of all, that procedure was followed. <clears throat> I don't know how it is people's understanding that we didn't have discussions. The meeting where Steve was not invited <clears throat> was specifically addressed because there was a lot of concerns. A lot of those concerns were were um, made to Brian Lampinen. So as the board, we invited Brian Lampinen to a meeting. And it was just so that we could hear, you know, as the voice voice of concerns that was addressed to Brian, we could hear everything that was going on. Then it was further extended to the other ministers. But we had a number of meetings. We followed the procedure. We did nothing wrong. Any other? Gene? Uh, well, going back to that first thing that Brian talked about, I just returned from South Dakota. We were there for 10 days. And I think this thing that happened, uh, putting our minutes on the internet, is probably one of the most despicable things that's ever occurred in our Christianity. I had people come to me and ask me questions about Brian Lappinen, accusations, they don't even know who the guy is, he's nothing but a troublemaker, and on and on and on. And we're talking about church discipline. We should look into this matter and find out how they got on there. Is this media going there too? So that we can be laughed at as a laughing stock from around the United States? I can't believe that. We're just not, we're just going to let that go by. No one knows what happened to it. That's unbelievable. More? response. Are we ashamed of how we believe? Are you ashamed to say how you believe? Absolutely not. Arnold? As we are going on with the meeting now, the meeting is being recorded right here. Is, do we have a recorder in here? Yes, right there. Are we yeah. are we going to go through this again? Who has the recorder? I have a recording You're device. You're not even a member. I am You're a member. You're not on the list. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Please take the recorder out here. We've had so much damage done with that recorder and those recordings 
Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable. And you know, there's nothing we can do other than be sorry that it had to happen because once something goes out on the internet, it's not retractable anymore. I am a member of the and congregation. You, you, you're not a member, you're not a member, you're not a resident of the upstate South Carolina, the requirements, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Oh, you want to see my driver's license? He has an address. He has an address up in, in North Carolina. Can you leave the recorder up here? No, no. Can you leave the recorder up here? We're not going to go through that again. We're not going to go through that again. We're not. We're asking. We don't want this recorded. From what I understand, you have a resident address and have lived in North Carolina. That's why we didn't put you on. Let it be said for the record that you are ashamed of what you believe. I am ashamed. You're making up, <clears throat> making up stories. I'm sorry. Okay. Any other issue? Ryan? I'd just like to recap on my first concern. It says in God's word that whose hatred is covered by deceit and wickedness shall be shown before the whole congregation. And that just testifies to these, these men Take them one at a time. Well, if somebody has an accusation, <clears throat> maybe I could hear an accusation first. 
does anyone want to, if you could hear it there, does anyone want to further comment on Ryan's three statements there? Ruth? I would like to hear um, what someone believes in the congregation about those three things. Ted? I thought the congregation was here to talk about Steve, not what other people. Steve should be answering those questions. <coughs> Bill? I, I guess I was just curious, is that the, the accusation that Steve speaks limited atonement, or, or is that, that's a, I guess that's what I was trying to figure out. Or once saved, always saved. Ryan's questions, accusations, or is that like, Ryan, can you further? Yeah, they're not just accusations out of the blue. They're, um, I have here in his writings, and we've discussed, and it's, it's well known with, with the other people in that, that support them, or you know, we've discussed with, I didn't name them and point them out, that there is a one saved, always saved understanding. And I'll read a small portion. Something that he had read, I mean, wrote. Well, two places. One, well, the first place is a lot of the book we put together. Um, more towards the end, in that last writing, it says this. Furthermore, those who say that God preserves his spirit and those who don't resist, at least who don't resist too much, are nothing but self-righteous. And then and there's another place, I'll comment on both of these, but there's another place that says... Would you read that again, please? Furthermore, those who say that God preserves his spirit and those who don't resist, at least those, at least who don't resist too much, are nothing but self-righteous. And there's more than one error bundled up in that statement. <coughs> Let me read this other one first. And furthermore, believe that a saved person at some point can become so resisting of God that God will have to abandon such a one. But this results in the erroneous notion that the sacrificial work of Christ is ineffective on earth unless and until it is mixed with the end the once saved, always saved is there because we believe, according to Hebrews, that, um, I believe it's Hebrews 3, it says, um, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we continue. If we hold fast the beginning of our confidence, steadfast unto the end, and there are many places that warn us in, in uh, Hebrews 10, if we sin willfully after that, we receive an hour of the Hebrews 6, there's all kinds of places that would speak exactly opposite of what I just read here. So yes, the one saved, always saved, is taught by people amongst us and it is supported 
by these writings, and it is wrong. It's clearly wrong by scripture, and if you'd like more discussion on it, I can quote more places or read more places, or, but I want to give somebody else the opportunity to comment on what's said so far. Or she. Where's the hands? <clears throat> if, if you see any over there, let me know. Ryan I'd like to read a place in Deuteronomy 29 also for us to consider in all these places keep in mind when I read these places this is not to sow doubt this is not to get us to disbelieve what's said in Romans 8 or Romans 9 or or John 10 or John 17. This is not my intent or scripture's intent. These places are in God's word to preserve us. And they're, they're plainly there, and there's no mistaking what God intends. Well, this next place is in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18 and 19 and 20. <coughs> Thus there is not among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and save gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he blessed himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. And the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. The Spirit of God has never taught on a once saved, always saved doctrine. It's completely wrong, and I could prove it wrong from every book of the Bible. Hands. Did you want to say anything, or you want to wait? No, I'll go after you. As I mentioned in the second meeting, what is foremost on my heart is number one, that true doctrine, the right knowledge of Christ would be retained among us, and also that there would be unity. For where there's strife and division, we know that the devil is at work. We have a common enemy we are not enemies of one another. We are not adversaries of one another. Our enemy is the devil himself who seeks to undo, to hinder that work which God does among his people. So I would ask that we keep this in mind as we go forward that we would pray one for another and ask God that he would preserve us in these last days from those assaults, the troubles that come when men can't live together in unity and peace and discuss matters and come to an understanding. We need to pray fervently that God would be with us and bless us as his sheep. We are but sheep, we're but people. 
and God's word is the truth. What I say of myself isn't true except it be based on God's word, and what any man says isn't true except it be God's word. So you and I, all of us together, need to ask God that he would unite us around this word, which is truth, so that we can be partakers of it, and then we can know Christ in truth. And knowing him in truth, then, we can attain that heavenly home. The accusation concerning limited atonement, or once saved, always saved, and what was written there by me, is from God's word, and it's testified also by our elders who gave us the Lutheran confessions as the doctrine of our church. And some have a problem with the Lutheran confessions, but those confessions, especially the Augsburg Confession, which is the doctrine of this church, wasn't written as somebody decided they were going to sit down and write a bunch of stuff, what they think God's word says. But those doctrines were born in a time of great spiritual conflict and upheaval, the time of the Reformation, when there was much assault on those church fathers whom God had awakened. Their faith was assaulted, their doctrine were assaulted, and they were called before the rulers of this world and before the church to answer for their teachings, and for that reason, these were written down. And by God's great grace, they are preserved for us today, for these are the doctrines of reformation and awakening. They are the doctrines that were alive when the love of God and, and the love of his word burned in the hearts of the people. And all oh, would to God that he would visit us today, that those truths would burn within our own hearts yet today. And uh, concerning the Lutheran confessions, they were given to the Apostolic Lutheran Church by our church fathers when the church was organized in America. They were given to us so that there would be no schism in the body from the Christians in the Northland, in Sweden and Finland, and us here today. It's written in our bylaws of the Federation by those who gave us our doctrine. Respectfully have the awakened people of this period, such as Lars Levi Lestadius, Leitinen, John Rothema, etc., honored the state church. The latter mentioned, that be Rothema, writes in 1895 in the July issue of the Christian Monthly as follows. These Christians have always faithfully remained within the church, administering the sacraments and the word, fully aware how God desires to teach all men on earth to know and reverence the common sacramental church. We have therefore striven to build an organization around the word and sacraments. In the course of the church organization among our immigrant people, it has never been our intention to sever ourselves from the fellowship of the common church and spirit of God's elect, as represented by the Zion of Finland. Since the Church of Finland has not undertaken any organization in this connection, we felt it our sacred responsibility, in view of the need here, 
to incorporate our church in accordance with the laws of our land. We sincerely hope the Church of Finland and the Lord Zion there will also look favorably upon this undertaking in the Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. If we abandon and forsake the doctrines given us by our elders, we will be creating that schism and that separation that our church fathers so earnestly warned against and took steps to avoid. So the doctrines that we hold and that which I hope by God's grace to teach are the doctrines of our church, for they are fully founded in the Holy Writ. Concerning uh, once saved, always saved, what was referenced is the nature of man as God begins to awaken and convert a sinner from his sin. And it must never be said that man in any way works or cooperates with the Spirit before his conversion so that God would grant unto him the Spirit. Because that is as it is written here in Corinthians. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Scripture also says that we are enemies in our mind by wicked works. That the carnal flesh that we have resists the Spirit and cannot cooperate with the Spirit. But God, by His grace, as the stronger man, comes into the house where the strong man, the devil himself, holds us bondage in our naturally sinful condition. We, as we are born, are born under the power of sin. But by the word and the gospel, God comes unto such a captive sinner. And as the stronger man, he enters our heart and he destroys that strong man who's there. Casts him out and spoils his goods and takes up residence. This he does, even though we of our own flesh, because we are sinful, resist that work and do not cooperate with him. But then to more fully flesh out the matter, it is true then that when God takes up his abiding place in our heart, we receive a new will. And he leads and guides us that we would then, as his children, as liberated, we would then cooperate with God and his spirit, for he has made us willing. And we know that uh, after we are awakened and converted and born again of the Spirit, that it is the whole duty of God and His will to lead and guide His own every day of their lives, to preserve them from evil, from the power of that strong one, even from the power of our own wicked heart and flesh, to preserve us unto that day when he receives us unto himself in heaven. 
This is his work. We know also that as Jesus gave the parable of the sower, the word was sown. And in some cases, it sprang up and died. In other cases, it sprang up but didn't bear fruit. This is to warn us that we cannot say, well, I've heard the word and I believe and I've been baptized, therefore, I'm saved. That is not a sufficient statement or foundation on which to stand. But those who are truly saved and God's children bring forth fruit by the Spirit unto perfection, some 30, some 60, some, some 90, some 100-fold. That is the work of the Spirit in working with us day by day. And we then don't have some kind of a confidence that is outside of Christ, outside of faith, outside of the blood. But day by day, as we journey along as God's children, our confidence is this, <clears throat> that he promises never to leave us nor forsake us, and that the gospel, that his blood is shed for the remission of our sins, is true yet today, and in these things we journey and walk, not with a presumptuous heart, but as sinners saved by grace, we look to that gospel that we heard at the first. And by the grace of God, keep that beginning, the beginning of our confidence, when we knew that all of our sins were forgiven, because Christ has paid for them on the cross. Keep that confidence steadfast unto the end, and we will receive a crown of life. And this is the work of God. Praise God. Amen. And, oh my goodness. Ryan again. I agree with everything that was just said. However, that's not what these writings say. These writings seem to mock somebody that would raise a concern because these writings say that, that such deluded ones believe that and furthermore, believe that a saved person at some point can become so resistant to God that God will abandon as such a one. So the issue is still there that, that these people believe that a person with the Holy Ghost cannot lose the Holy Ghost. And yet, Scripture and the, and the elders, this is what it says here in the full formula of the conqueror. We also reject and condemn the dogma that faith and the indwelling of the Holy Ghost are not lost by willful sin, but that the saints and the elect retain the Holy Ghost even though they fall into adultery and other sins and persist therein. And the people that believe, the once saved always say, will not say a statement like this. They will not quote from the place I'm about to read in Hebrews 6. And they won't. And I also like to read in Hebrews 10 too, and they will not say these kinds of things because they don't believe it pertains to them. That says here in Hebrews 6, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And then in Hebrews 10. 
Hebrews chapter 10, it's speaking again of us. And notice when it says us and we and our, it's referring to that we have the Holy Spirit, we're going to speak like this. It's not some other men that are able to do this, but it's us. It says, first of all, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. For how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified in that holy thing? and have done despite unto the spirit of grace. That belongs to each one of us. Each one of us should be able to read a place like that and say, Amen, that's for me. God, help me. Help me to, to love the work of Christ. Help me to love the regenerating power of the blood. And help me to love all that Jesus has done. Help me to hate sin. Help me to struggle against it. Because these warnings apply to me. But just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. It says further. So this making fun of or calling people deluded that would speak such things is it's just not that's not the way it is. It's not spiritual teaching. Okay, we're gonna go on Ruth. Yeah, I I'd like to clarify something. When you say there are people who have a doctrine of once saved, always saved. Uh, when I've heard of that understanding, I've heard that people believe that once they've been saved, it doesn't matter how they live, they can live in all kinds of sin, and they're still going to be saved. Is that what you're talking about? That's the worst extreme of it, but it starts off with like, these kind of statements. I don't know anybody in this congregation that believes that way. And certainly, I've never had the impression that Steve believed that way. I mean, I'll direct it up here, but, but you don't have to believe that way fully to be wrong. It's just, if you don't believe what the Bible says, that's where you begin to err. Lauren? You're saying, in, Steve's saying that once we're saved, once you're born again, that if we fall into any of these sins, that we don't need repentance again? No. Or is that what, you, or what, are you, what were you saying then? I'll read you what he said. And for these deluded souls believe that God waits upon man. This is actually blending two issues. These deluded souls believe that God waits upon man to show himself willing before God can work to save him. And Steve addressed that already, and he spoke clearly about God stirring us up to... We do not, our will is completely passive in conversion. We do nothing. God works in us, and Steve spoke wonderfully of that earlier. But the error involved is this. And furthermore, believe that a saved person at some point can become so resisting of God that God will have to abandon such an one. They won. That's not scriptural. 
In the place of that dread of Deuteronomy, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, fly in the face of that. It's not a scriptural statement. The Old Testament also says, if, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the fat of the land. Which one, which, who of us can say that we are both willing and obedient so that we can enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God? If we look to our obedience as the measuring stick by which we judge whether we are children of God, we're in error. The measuring stick by which we judge whether we are children of God even when we find in ourselves that kind of flesh that is written here, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. It wasn't written there that a person who is living in open and unrepentant, in open and gross sin, can still claim to be saved and to have the Holy Ghost. That wasn't written there at all. But when we find in our flesh that kind of a warfare, where we can wonder, even, how can I be a Christian today, sinner that I am, resisting those things of God, desiring the things of the world and of my flesh, and when the battle rages and we wonder, how can such a wretch as I even claim to be a child of God? We look to the gospel, we look to the cross, we look to that work that Christ has done for us, and hold on to that, that the good and gracious will of God is that we would be saved, just as we are, and that our salvation is based not upon our ability to please God and to cooperate with the Spirit, but we find that we are under the control and power of the Spirit, who even in these times of battle and warfare leads us to green pastures and to good places, even though we must go through a time of trial and, and torment and tribulation. So it is self-righteous to say, that I am a child of God and retain the Spirit because I do not resist the Holy Ghost as bad as the other man does. Like the Pharisee in the temple prayed, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men are. We are like other men are. And if you're like me, you're worse than other men are. But yet today, I can say, by the grace of God, that I'm a child of God, just as I am, with a wicked and corrupt flesh that does not yet receive and accept the things of God. For God has accepted me through the blood of his Son, and that's good enough for me, for it has saved my soul. <clears throat> Is there anyone else, or Ryan? I agree with what you said. We experience that in our daily life, the struggles and the wickedness in Romans 7. Speaks about the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would, the that I do. That's all there. But the places I've mentioned, is it self righteous to say what I just said out of Scripture? Is it self righteousness? Is it pharisaical to, to speak like it says in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 3, I quoted from Deuteronomy 29? Is that self righteous and arrogant? No. That's how we believe. As, as Christians, that's how we believe. Of course we don't believe that we can save ourselves. We're constantly crying out for the Spirit of God to help us. And as Romans 8 says, um, if, you, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye to the Spirit be mortified the deeds of the body, you shall live. That's our perspective of it. We don't, 
give a hair's breadth to our, our wicked nature. As soon as we're aware of it, we want to um, come to Christ for power and we, and we utter prayers and when we fall into sin, we, we ask for help and forgiveness and pardon and we don't play around with it. I'm glad we're in agreement. <clears throat> I'd like to add a couple of things that um, what, uh, in general that what Ryan was talking about when we talk about um, one saved, always saved and that type of <clears throat> doctrine or so-called doctrine that um, what I have heard and maybe Steve can answer this is um, what's pointing to a one saved always saved is forgiveness of sins is not needed and it should not be preached from the pulpit I've heard that um, I've heard that you have said that and that's attributed to you even before you moved here what do you mean by forgiveness of sins Forgiveness of sins is, forgiveness of sins is, well, that leads to another thing, and that's re repentance. I know I've heard the term that repentance is a turning away from sin. But to me, in all of the years I've been in this Christianity and, and heard some of the uh, elder speakers that have, have since gone on in that, to me, repentance is, is, is that where we're troubled by our sins, we ask forgiveness, laying on of hands, confession and absolution, and all of that to me is, I, I just have a simple belief, all of that is rolled together in one. I know I've made that statement, I know that statement was recorded, I know that statement was made fun of on the internet, and that troubles me. Um, I hear that things like ALC, which is Apostle Lutheran Church, is made fun of in terms that were a list of confessions. Uh, those things really bother me that uh, that our church and our, our Christianity is, is made fun of. Um, those type of things, and, and yet we ask, who put that, who published that, nobody knows. So how can you accuse someone when there's no accuser, but yet it's out there and it's very damaging. So that understanding of Forgiveness of sins is not needed, and my interpretation of what I believe is forgiveness of sins is, you know, asking for forgiveness, the oral declaration of forgiveness of sins. How do you understand that? Or have I asked it right? I think I get the gist of it. Okay. Now, repentance is a change of heart, a turning away. That's the definition of repentance. Confession and absolution is often connected to repentance. And no one would ever teach, I hope no one would ever teach, that repentance isn't necessary or that confession and absolution isn't necessary. For with confession comes the absolution. And no true child of God would diminish any of the means of grace or any means by which God bestows absolution upon his people. Concerning the new covenant, it's written that, it, it's written this way, that God says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. 
Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, said, this is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood, given and shed for you for the remission of sins. When we, by faith, grasp that gospel, we are a forgiven people. All of our sins are forgiven. Scriptures teaches that our hearts are purified by faith. We are under a covenant of blood. And the blood of Jesus speaks every moment of every day to the Father. Forgive my people. And under that crimson covering, you and I can trust even right now that before God we are pure and white, sinless and holy, that God sees no sin in us. And David came to understand this new covenant too when he had to confess that he had sinned. And Nathan said, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. This is a blessed matter when we find that under the old covenant, you and I would have to die for our sins. But there is, in the new covenant, that message that comes to us, that the Lord hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. And we walk in that hope all day and every moment trust in that gospel. But it comes that sometimes it can be actual sin that we commit that troubles us and disturbs our peace and disturbs our faith. It can sometimes just be coldness in the heart and a lack of zeal and love toward God. And these things then ought to be dealt with in a way that would bring that gospel to the heart to reassure <coughs> us of our state of grace. And that means is confession and absolution. When we confess to another that which is troubling us, when we confess our unbelief, our coldness, our lack of love, and we can hear that blessed gospel, believe all your sins forgiven in Jesus' name and shed blood. Believe all your sins forgiven. And we are then reassured that we can yet journey forward with that hope, that sure hope of an eternal cleansing wrought by the blood of Christ. When he appeared at the end of time to put away sin by the offering of himself, we have this hope and by the gospel we are reassured of it when our hearts and consciences are troubled. And confession and absolution is far more about the absolution than it is about the confession. It's not like, oh, I, I made confession, I got that off my chest, I did what I was supposed to do. If that's how we look at it, we're looking at it wrongly. It ought to be a desire and a need to hear that precious gospel, to be reassured that the blood of Jesus still speaks for us. Um, <clears throat> on this subject, I had somebody a little closer. Somebody gave me a quote of yours, and I don't know if this was something you wrote or something you said. They didn't tell me. They just said, and maybe you didn't even say this, but it says, "To say that man can put away sin is to usurp the chief office of Christ." What What does that mean? Scripture teaches that Christ puts away sin. 
As Nathan told David, the Lord hath put away thy sin. And it is written in Hebrews that Christ has appeared to put away sin by the offering of himself. When it comes to the putting away of the guilt of sin, man is incapable of doing it. We cannot put away the guilt of our sin. Sin is greater than we are. Should we try to put away sin with a sinful tongue, with sinful fit members, how does sin put away sin? But there is in scripture uh, a reference to man putting away sin uh, and it is always to put it out of your life and don't do it. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Uh, when, uh, I believe it was Hannah, went to the temple and the priest thought she was uh, drunk with wine, he said, put away your wine from you, woman. How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away. But when it comes to putting away the guilt of sin, we can't do it. But when we confess our need, when we confess that sin is greater than we are, then we hear that gospel of the one who has put away our sin. And in that work, we trust. Because put is a verb, it's an action word. Man can't put away the guilt of sin. But Jesus can, and he did. You want to reply to that? I think the interpretation by uh, a number of people as far as uh, putting away sin uh, was that man can, through the, through the office of the keys, whoever, that we can forgive one another, the ability to forgive sins, that Absolutely. whoever sins you retain, they retain, whoever sins you remit, they are remitted. So there is a need for forgiving one thing, you know, if, if their conscience bothers them, they ask for forgiveness, that we can forgive them, and they indeed are forgiven. Oh, absolutely. <coughs> so, because Christ has put them away. So the need for preaching forgiveness means that put away sins, uh, audible declaration, laying on of hands, all of that is, is needed. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Well, just maybe a little different area, but uh, to say that we must enumerate each sin in confession before it is forgiven is not a scriptural teaching. In fact, it would bind a, an awakened conscience because for one thing, our sins are so many. And for another thing, who can make a right confession? And also, if it is a rule that each sin must be confessed before it is forgiven, then who of us would dare be alone? A conscience is bound in such a, under such a teaching. The confession and absolution is used to not to bind conscience or to bind people, but it is to assure us of that liberty wherein Christ has made us free, liberty of conscience, that we can journey freely, trusting fully in the forgiveness of sins and not wondering if we made right confession or confessed all of our sins.
And then one other matter on confession, since it's brought up, is scripture teaches that if, <coughs> if, a, uh, if we injure a brother or a sister, then we are to go to them and confess. That is a scriptural teaching. But as far as the guilt of sin on the conscience, it is the believing of the gospel that frees us and looses us. And scripture says, whom the Son maketh free, he is free indeed. And by faith, that is the freedom you and I walk in. In order, Ruth and Jean. Can I? Mm -hmm. Um, hey, you got it right there? Mm -hmm. Okay. This is the doctrine of the Apostolic Lutheran Church. Confession in our churches is not abolished, for it is not usual to give the body of our Lord, except to them that have been previously examined and absolved. And the people are most carefully taught concerning the faith and assurance of absolution, about which, before this time, there was profound silence. Our people are taught that they should highly prize the absolution as being the voice of God and pronounced by his command. The power of the keys is commended, and we show what great consolation it brings to anxious consciences that God requires faith to believe such absolution as a voice sounding from heaven and that such faith in Christ truly obtains and receives the forgiveness of sins. Aforetime satisfactions were immoderately extolled of faith and the merit of Christ and the righteousness of faith no mention was made of. Wherefore, on this point, our churches are by no means to be blamed. For this, even our adversaries must needs concede to us that the doctrine concerning repentance has been most diligently treated and laid open by our teachers. But of confession they teach, that an enumeration of sins is not necessary, and that consciences be not burdened with anxiety to enumerate all sins. For it is impossible to recount all sins as the psalm testifies. Who can understand his errors? Also Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? But if no sins were forgiven except those that are recounted, consciences could never find peace. For very many sins they neither see nor can remember. The ancient writers also testify that an enumeration is not necessary. For in the decrees, Chrysostom is quoted who thus says, I say not to thee that thou shouldest disclose thyself in public, nor that thou accuse thyself before others. But I would have thee obey the prophet who says, Disclose thy way before God. Therefore, confess thy sins before God, the true judge, with prayer. Tell thine errors, not with the tongue, but with the memory of thy conscience. And the gloss of repentance admits that that confession of human right only. Nevertheless, on account of the great benefit of absolution, and because it is otherwise useful to the conscience, confession is retained among us. Dean? Well, it seems so interesting to me that we spend so much time talking about absolution and confession. And since we were little little kids, we learned in the catechism that we put away, put away those sins that we know and, and trouble us. Just as simple as that. 
what all this enumeration is about and who preaches that, I do not know. Isn't it simple just to put away sins that we know and trouble us? Is that a difficult thing to understand or do we have to start going into all this? I can't fathom why we have to be so theological and And one more thing, a lot of the replies I've heard tonight, I've diligently listened to several of your sermons, Steve. I have not heard that in your preaching. I have a packet of your writings here. I do not find that in your writing. Isn't that interesting? Is that a question? That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I've got, um, is it Ryan? Ryan? Ryan no, no. Randy. Randy, Randy, and then. Um, I was just going to ask Bob if you could go get a catechism and read it, what it says. I brought a catechism here. And then Ray afterward. Out of the question and answer section? Confession and absolution. It's on uh, page 107 it starts. Confession and absolution. Number one says, what is confession? Telling one's sins to the minister or to some other trusted Christian. That person to whom sin is confessed is called the father confessor. How is this done? The sinner must confess his sin and by faith seek the grace of God in Christ. In how many ways may, Christian, may confession be done? Two, in a group and by personal confession. What is group confession? It is the confession of an entire congregation in mutual worship. Do you want me to read the scripture verses that go along with it or no? Yes. Why don't you go to the uh, catechism itself? And the questions and answers aren't... Written by Luther. What page you Twenty-six. The questions and answers aren't written by Luther? No. This is. I'm not saying that, you know, this is more concise. This is what we're teaching our children, so I guess. What, what page you say? Twenty-six. Twenty-six. Hmm. Okay, this is shorter, but... What is confession? Confession embraces two parts. One, that we confess our sins. <coughs> the other, that we receive absolution or forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. And in no wise doubt, but firmly believe that through it, our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. What sins should we confess? Before God, we should acknowledge ourselves guilty of all sins, even of those which we do not discern, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the confessor, we should confess those sins only which we know and which trouble us. Which are those? Here consider your station in the light of the Ten Commandments, whether you are a father, mother, son, daughter, master, mistress, servant, whether you have been disobedient, unfaithful, slothful, whether you have wronged anyone by word or deed, whether you have stolen, neglected, wasted, bought, or done any harm. In the office of the keys. That go along with it? Yeah. What is the office of the keys? 
It is the peculiar church power which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive sins of penitent sinners, but to retain the sins of the impenitent as long as they do not repent. Where is this written? Thus writes the Holy Evangelist John, chapter 20th. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. How many keys are there? Two. One for loosening, one for binding. What is the key for loosening? It is the power given by Christ to his servants on earth to release a repentant sinner from his sins, which opens to him the kingdom of heaven. Where is this written? In Christ's own words, Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. St. Paul writes, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. What is the key for binding? It is that power given by Christ to his servants on earth, by which an unrepentant sinner is bound by his sins, which closes heaven to him, excommunicates him. Where is this written? Christ himself says, Whosoever ye shall, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And these are two different uh, sections, or elements, confession and absolution in the office of the keys. Confession and absolution is to relieve and release anxious consciences the consciences of the believers. The office of the keys is not tied solely to confession, but wherever the gospel is preached, there the forgiveness of sins is preached, whether it be at home, whether it be from the pulpit, whether it be in discussion. The office of the keys is throughout the preaching of God's word, and that is the office of the gospel, to release us, the penitent, from their sins. I think Ray. Ray? Yeah. Um, Steve, I'd just you know, like to ask you a question. Um, at the last meeting that we had, um, it, it was brought up that um, actually Brian was preaching, and you had got up and walked out of the congregation, I mean, out of the, out of the fellowship hall, I mean, the, the church here, and, and, it, and went into the vestibule, and there was some confrontation you have stated that you were asked what was what were you saying, and you said that you were going to bring that up with Brian. And, and, um, and the last I had talked to Brian, you never talked to Brian. And, and it's evident when Brian's preaching that you don't show up in church, and, I'm, and I just wonder why. Sounds like two questions. Yeah, well, we uh, forgive those who bear false witness. Um, there was no confrontation in the back. Um, I did talk to Brian about it. And uh, there were two witnesses when I spoke to Brian about what happened there. The matter is resolved. And, uh, that's, uh, that's how that goes. Uh, secondly, Scripture teaches this way, Mark them which cause division among you, and avoid them. 
and Brian is causing division, uh, contrary to the doctrine which we have learned. And unfortunately, there have been accusations made, such as the first meeting. Then there was a second meeting, and the accusations were not proven. They, yet people have just forged ahead with whatever motive they have, um, just forging ahead, no matter what, to accomplish whatever people are out to accomplish. Um, that's divisive. Very, very dangerous. That's not right. <coughs> Wait. Ryan Lampin, you had your hand up a long time. Okay. Then John, John's before Gene. John, John, John. John Madsen. <coughs> John. Just so you understand of my thought on the question is, I'm certainly in for no division of churches. Been through it once already. If most of you know who I am married into the family of. So this is just in a question of a sermon that I listened to this afternoon. What is your belief in predestination? Could be worded wrong. Sometimes I know when you're standing there, you're in front of a group, all of a sudden you stutter, miss a word, it could be misunderstood. But what is your belief in that? In predestination? Predestination is a scriptural doctrine concerning God's dealing with his people. God from eternity knows who are his own. And these who are his own are those whom he has predestinated. Predestination and election are unto life. Scripture does not teach of an election unto damnation. We all are alike sinners. But God in his mercy has come to us, not because we deserved it, but because he chose to have mercy upon us and to break our stony hearts to reveal to us our sin, to reveal to us a need for a savior. This he has done by his own will and work, not by our will and work. We are saved by pure grace and mercy, and God is not unjust to show mercy to a sinner. All who perish, on the other hand, perish justly for their sin, not because God didn't elect them, not because they're not predestinated unto light, but because they persisted in sin and unbelief. And death is the scriptural reward for sin. But we who are saved get not what we deserve, but we get the gift of grace, the gift of righteousness. These things are gift, gifts, and to these gifts we are called For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
Predestination deals only with Christ and drawing the sinner to and making the sinner a partaker of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many, many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And the thing to note in this predestination, that it comes from God's will toward us, and it's also God's work in us. For it says, whom he predestinated, them he called, whom he called, them he justified, whom he justified, them he glorified. Isn't it wonderful that sinners though we are, deserving of death, God has decided otherwise and has called us unto virtue and glory, though we deserve to go to hell and we don't deserve this grace. We receive this from God's hand of mercy. It was Lauren first and then Randy. I just want to read here. I listened to a sermon by Carl Fula this morning. And the end of it, he read from Hebrews 6. And it says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of the doctrines of baptism, and of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. I think this last verse is real 